Uh, let's open this up with a word of prayer first. Father, we do thank you for this beautiful day that you've created. Lord, we thank you for the weekend that we've enjoyed. And we thank you for the opportunity to, to come here today to worship you, to, uh, to come and hear your message, to interact with uh, fellow believers, to, uh, to be part of that family, Lord. We thank you for all those blessings that come with that. Lord, I would just pray that, that our worship was honoring to you and that your name is glorified in all that happens in this, uh, in this uh, service today. And uh, Lord, we just ask that you bless our time together. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, I have one of these under my belt now. Uh, I was in the first service. Got a little long, but the whole service is a little long, so... Bear with me, I don't see any place where I can cut back. But anyways, my name is Paul Learman. I serve this church as a member of the Elder Board. I've been here 34 years now. I've been 11 years of that time spent on the Elder Board. I currently also serve the congregation in the men's ministry leadership team. I'm also part of the faith prayer, prayer team. Uh, today I'll be bringing you the message. I also... Ultimately, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus is my Savior. He is therefore my Lord and Master, and I am His servant. How many of you can identify with that statement? I think there's more hands than that, but that will come back. Uh, Peter and Paul both identified themselves as servants, and I likewise identify myself as servant. What is the goal for today's message? Uh, this topic can be very broad. When I teach the evangelism classes here, it usually is about a six-week course. So I've compacted a lot of what I want to bring to you. Uh, the last third of the, of the message will be revolving around how can I do ministry in evangelism. But I want to be able to challenge and encourage you in this ministry uh, because it's not easy, but we are called... To do that, the primary text, as you can see, is going to be found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38, and I've also included its application in our lives. How is that going to happen? So we see in the text, we will read, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. I can relate to the first half because my spiritual gifts, and I hope you all know what your spiritual gifts are because you have been given that, so utilize them. But I am a shepherd, so I will go to great lengths to find you and to bring you back into the, into, the, into the flock. I will do whatever it takes to keep you in the flock and try to teach and work with you. So I understand what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, to start the conversation, we're going to take a, a brief review of the early church. Uh, we'll look at its humble beginnings. Uh, Jesus has just talked to his disciples, and they've gone back to Jerusalem. And... Uh, we find that there's roughly 120 people in that upper room that are assembling every day praying in advance of the Holy Spirit coming. 
And of that 120, we have the 11 disciples. We also have brothers of Jesus, along with several women and Jesus' mother, Mary. So 120 is what we're told uh, by Luke in the, in the book of Acts. So it's a very humble beginning. We'll look at and see where, uh, where we're at today, uh, starting with 120 people in the first church. The Pew Forum reported that in 2010, Christians numbered 2.2 billion, or 31% of the world's population. More statistics. The report given by the journal First Things, published in 2015, shows a constant population of around a third of the world's people making it the largest religion. Christianity is the largest religion. In 1900, it reported that 34.5% of the people consider themselves Christian. 1970 reported 33.3%. 2000 reported 32.4% as Christians. And in 2015, we see 33.4%. You have to recognize that even if the percentages have gone down a little bit, they rebounded in 2015, but if they've gone down a little bit, the population continues to grow. So that means that there are more Christians than probably that 2.2 billion that we saw in that first slide. What about Manitowoc County? There's always interesting statistics around that. And I was surprised to see that 70.8% of the county residents consider themselves religious. Now, I don't know what they mean by religious. Uh, I assume that means that they have some affiliation with a church or have had some kind of affiliation with the church. Interestingly enough, almost half, 43.5% uh, of them are practicing Catholics. I grew up in the Lutheran church, and I was surprised to see that that number was 15.3%. I would have thought there were a few more Lutherans than that, but that evidently isn't the number. And then we have the others. We, we had the Methodists, the Baptists, and several other churches enumerated in this. I couldn't find free church. We are a free church. And I didn't see it in an assemblies church. I didn't see it in some of the other churches that we consider evangelical. So I'm not a mathematician, but according to my math, roughly 4%. We would be included in that 4% as others. We consider ourselves evangelical or fundamentalists. Um, we do, however, uh, belong to the Free Church of America, which I guess is a denomination, but I wouldn't call it a mainline denomination. And our church in Wisconsin, along with Hope on the other side of the city, are part of the Forest Lakes District. Evangelical churches, again, back to the Pew Forum, uh, showed that in, from the time of 2017, uh, 2007 excuse me, to 2014, there was a growth in evangelical churches in America. They grew by 2 million people, while mainline churches dropped by 5 million. I'm not sure where the shift was. I'm not sure what happened to the 3 million that used to be part of a mainline church. I assume some came to the fundamental church, but I'm not sure where they all went. I, I don't have an answer to that. What is the difference between us evangelicals and the mainline? The number one difference is that on a very regular basis, you see the gospel preached in this church. Jeremy, Pat, Brian, Kyle, other people that bring messages here, the, the gospel is clearly, clearly presented. 
We also believe in the literal truth of the Scriptures. And we also teach about the reality of God's presence in the believer's life. Well, what do I mean by that? What that is, is that there's two parts of salvation. Yes, you have the guarantee of, of eternity with the Lord, but there's even more benefits to that if you take advantage of it. And that is God wants to be involved in your life on a daily basis. That's what we call a personal relationship. So you need to take advantage of that. I want to revisit what, what does it mean for literal truth. And the best way I can identify what that means is an instance in my life where I had to explain something to a young man. Uh, his name is Aaron. He was my oldest son, Dustin's best friend growing up. And uh, when they went to high school, they went to separate high schools. Dustin went to Lincoln. Aaron went to another high school in, in, in Manitowoc. And we were always witnessing to Dustin's friends, Zachary's friends. We tried to get to know their parents. We were always looking for opportunities to plant seeds and hopefully with the idea to eventually lead them across the line if they didn't already know Jesus as Savior. Aaron came to us one day and, and asked us a question, asked me a question specifically. He said, uh, in his religion class, the teacher, Bible teacher, stated that, uh, it came up, but he stated that not all of the stories in the Bible can be taken with a grain of salt. They're not all true, is what he said. And that caused great concern for Aaron because of what we've been telling him and caused great concern for me. I, I, he asked me about that. And I said, well, first thing, Aaron, is that the Bible is God-breathed. It's God-inspired. God inspired the writers of the Bible. These are his words. So to say that this story isn't true, that story maybe is true, I would say you're calling God a liar, not a place that you want to be. The second thing is when you start picking and choosing which stories might be true, which stories aren't true, all right, if Jonah and the whale is a hard story to believe, well, what about the resurrection? The resurrection would be a very tough, tough story to believe in that someone dies and they're raised again from the dead. Well, if that doesn't happen, then what you and I are practicing as our faith is total bunk. It, it means nothing. Jesus did not complete the task that he was sent for. Our sins are not forgiven. God is not appeased. And we are still lost. So, Aaron, you have to come to grips with that. Uh, the Bible is true. Don't let anybody else tell you anything else. So, knowing that there's a difference between what we teach and other churches teach, just because someone considers themselves a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that they are walking in the truth. We teach the truth here. We teach what the Bible says. So that is going to be part of what we talk about when we look at harvest. So what is my responsibility in regards to the harvest? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Those are our marching orders. Jesus did not qualify that statement by saying, 
If you're a preacher, if you're an evangelist, if you're gifted in such a way to present the message, I don't think he let anybody off the hook. He didn't, he didn't qualify it by that. He said, go and make disciples. So we're going to look at some of the reasons as to why people don't go. But those are our marching orders. Pastor Jeremy of this church, along with Pastor Andy at Hope Church, have a vision for Manitowoc, reaching the lost in Manitowoc. We've entitled it Tithing Manitowoc, which means in the next 10 years, we're going to endeavor to reach 10% of the population for Jesus. I have faith. I believe that God is going to do even more than that. And if we are dutiful about going out and doing that, everyone takes part of that. Everybody's praying for those opportunities. We will see more come to that. I think there's going to be a great renaissance here, a, a great coming of to know the Lord. But that's tithing Manitowoc. So I, I pray that God will be glorified by all that we do. So how do we go and make disciples? Uh, we first need to see the world around us and have compassion for them. Just as Jesus looked at the crowds following him in Matthew 9, verse 36, we should love them too. I, I, I get compassionate. I, I have a passion for evangelism. But it strikes me when I, I read the Sentinel or I read the Herald Times, and I don't make a practice of going to the old bits, but on occasion they catch my eye. And you see some of these people that have just passed on. Most of them, they say, uh, passed on peacefully, praise God. Uh, uh, passed on, surrounded by loved ones, praise God. Uh, here's some of the description of what these people did. Uh, John was head maintenance engineer for, for 35 years. He enjoyed helping others as well as spending time with family and friends. Sounds like a good guy. Susan, uh, she was a great cook and was known as the best cook in the neighborhood by the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Susan also received an honorable mention from the mayor as a volunteer translator. This is the shortest one. Henry, uh, Died at the age of 91, doesn't talk a whole lot about it, but he was the proud owner of a grocery store in Milwaukee. Uh, Ferdinand, uh, he and his wife Judy were married for nearly 52 years. He served in the U.S. Navy for 20 years and worked in quality control and was an avid cabinet maker and woodworker. He loved reading and spending time with family, especially his grandsons Eric and Jake. He enjoyed hunting, fishing, and learning new things. And then we have Elizabeth, or Beth. And see if you can pick out what was a little bit different about this, because it gave me some hope. Because uh, we, we know nothing about these people. Beth was cherished by her, fam by her husband, children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, who treasured their time with her. Her faith in God, warmth, and kindness were, beautiful, were a beautiful example to all who knew her. That's, that's a great old bit. Uh, the fact that she knew God, had a faith in God, I think that's promising. Last few weeks, I noticed in the Mantalk old bits that a young man by the age of 33 and by the name of Tyler. Tyler, if I said his last name, you'd recognize him as one of the rising stars. He competed in the rising stars. He was only 33 years old when he died. I don't know where he was at, but I have compassion. I can no longer help him. No one can help him. But we've got to recognize that, hey, people are dying every day. We need to reach people with the gospel. That is our sole purpose for life here. 
Secondly, we need to see, or we see that the harvest is great. Jesus even pointed out. But the workers are few. That means we need to step up and become one of those needed workers. What does that mean? Let's look at why are there not enough workers? Well, we talked a little bit about that. Some, of, some might say, well, I have a lack of confidence in my ability. I lack knowledge when it comes to the Bible. Okay, if you use that excuse with me, I have an easy fix for that, that excuse. It's called reading your Bible. You need to read your Bible every day. It's a daily discipline that you need to do. It goes along with fasting, prayer, and all, uh, tithing. It goes with all of those. You cannot use the excuse that you don't know the Bible only if you're not reading it. And that tells me that you're not reading it. So that's an easy fix for that first question. The second one is, I need more training. I'm not an evangelist or a pastor. Well, we already, I already indicated that Jesus didn't qualify that statement, go and make disciples, by saying, if you're a pastor, if you're an elder, if you're a teacher, he says, all of you should go and make disciples. But I do have some help there. Uh, Corey talked about the REACH conference. That's Faith Church Evangelistic Conference. That's going to be on October 14th. I encourage you all to sign up. We have sign-up back there today. Whether you have been engaged for years in evangelism or you're just getting started, I encourage you to come and listen to what Charlie Bing has to say on the topic. But other people that have the opinion, as I do, that you're not off the hook. I use material by Bill Hybels. It's called Just Walk Across Room. So when I teach evangelism, that is the book that I use. And it takes six weeks usually to do that. Bill Hybels, who teaches people how to evangelize, he's the pastor at Willow Creek in, in Chicago, he says, if you are a Christian follower, then, he says, you are called, you have been equipped, and expected to share the gospel. So he puts the burden on you. Leighton Ford, retired vice president of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Organization, says this, a church that bottlenecks its specialists, by specialists we're talking pastors, a church that bottlenecks its specialists to do the witnessing is living in violation of both Jesus Christ and the constant pattern of early Christians. So where are we at as a church? Evangelism was a task for the whole church, not just Jeremy Vance. Third reason, and I, and I struggled with this one for a little while, and I finally was able to put it in words that I think won't be quite as chafing, uh, in this day and age of consumerism and materialism, and our church is not, and when I say our church, I'm not saying faith church. I'm saying all the church, the church of America, is not immune to those two things. There appears to be more attention to chasing the American dream, and then whatever time is left over after doing that, we might consider doing kingdom work. Consider where you're at with that. I have been... Uh, discipling a man for many years. He was part of my Top Gun group. So he's learned the, the way of evangelism. That way of evangelism is what we use in men's ministry. It's how we work here. Uh, so he's been taught how to do that. And we were discussing after looking at a, a chapter in, in uh, Revelations a couple weeks ago where we just talked about a quarter of the world being destroyed in one day. And I said, well, how do we apply that knowledge to our lives well one it should scare you but secondly 
we shouldn't be scared because we will be in heaven witnessing this. But you need to have compassion for those people that are left behind. So what should you do? That should chase you out in the street and talk to everybody that you know. That should be what should happen. Find out when we start talking about that, Steve has been in the same place where he's lived for 25 years. I said, well, so how much have you witnessed to the people around you? At work, he has done some. Not a lot, he's done some. The neighbor on the left, the neighbor on the right, he couldn't tell me if they went to church, if they were believers. He had no clue of anything about them. Sounds to me like he hasn't been doing his job. He couldn't even tell me the names of the people that lived behind him or the people that lived across from him. He was surrounded by people that he needed to get to know. So if you know me, that means I got after him about that. The fourth reason, and I really wrestled with this one, but uh, I call it church consumerism. We have people that move from church to church and their goal when they're seeking a church is to find out what can that church give me? What can I get out of that church? Rather than my attitude of is how can I serve the community through that church? What ministries can I work in to serve that community? Several examples of churches that have become inward focused and fight over the littlest things. Uh, Terry Jacobson used to be a person. I grew up with him as a, uh, as a young adult here. He moved because of work, has become an elder at a church in Ripon. And that church years ago went through a split, nasty split. Don't know what they fought over, but they went through a nasty split. He is on the elder board now, and they still struggle with people issues. People not worried about the people lost out there in the world, but more about what happens within the walls. Same thing with Mike and Vicki Lynn Easker. They're over in Appleton. They've been involved in a church that also went through a church split. Again, I don't know what the details are, but it's a church split. Now they're just trying to hang on. As numbers dwindle, they've joined forces with another church that was just as small as they are trying to survive, and they've done it a third time. Uh, things happen. What about here at Faith Church? We aren't perfect. Um, sometimes I know that uh, we had an incident this week where Jeremy and Kyle had to meet with somebody and they left that meeting pretty heavy-hearted. Um, didn't go as they had hoped it would go. This person was very upset and said that they were never going to come back to this church. And so for a staff member to hear that and to be torn down, it's a terrible thing. And I as an elder have experienced those things too. I'm up here on the stage and I see numerous things that have caused people to leave the church or at least become disgruntled. Uh, music is evidently a lightning rod. We have people that want to see more hymns sung. We want people that want to see more contemporary so there's never a good balance. We have people upset about how the music is played. Uh, it's just an endless thing that Kyle has to deal with. Uh, the cross. We didn't always have a cross up in front there for a period of time. That became an issue for one family. They said, where's the cross? Well, okay, yeah, the cross is important to me, but it's a thing. Um, but they were concerned about it. The last example are these risers on the platform here. We had a couple that 
came to our church last summer and they were church shopping. They were unhappy with the church that they came from. I don't know what they were upset about, but they weren't happy with what the church was doing. They weren't terribly enamored with the music that, that we were providing for them in worship, but they endured. Uh, the final straw for them, though, was when Kyle introduced these risers and put the, the lead guitar on a riser and the bass guitar on a riser, they said, we are out of here. We don't want anything to do with that. And I tried to meet with these people to find out more about their reasoning. On occasion, I've had to do exit interviews with people that have want to leave. And usually what I try to do, I encourage them, I, you know, gosh, I wish you would stay here. You have so much to offer this church, and this church has a lot to offer to you. But I, I know it's usually not going, whereas I always encourage them. I said, okay, you've made a decision to go to a different church. What you need to do is rather than shopping for a church that meets your needs, find a church where you feel comfortable at and tell the pastor, I am there, I am ready to serve. Offer something, give to the church, not ask what the church can, can take. I didn't get that chance, but when churches lose focus, and what is the focus? Evangelism. Why do we focus on evangelism? Because people are dying every day, and they may be going to hell. We need to keep that in mind, that that's what's going on. So what's the next step? First, we need to pray. Jesus said in Matthew 9.30, it said, So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. So we're praying to God to bring us those workers, to bring about the harvest. We need to begin by praying. What can happen when, when believers pray? We see throughout the whole book of Acts, Acts is just a great historical perspective on the church from its beginning to the, the end of Paul's third missionary trip. You see how the church acts, what the church does. And the first and foremost thing that the church does, it's always praying. We talked about that group of 120. They were praying. Seven weeks later, the day of Pentecost happens. That's when the Holy Spirit baptizes them. And they now are able to preach. They're able to speak in tongues. And as they spill out into the street, the other people that are there for the festival come out and say, what, what's with these people? Are they drunk? I mean, some people didn't understand, and yet other people who came from different parts of the world said, well, that person's speaking my language. So after Peter set them straight and said, no, it's too early in the morning, we have not been drinking, he sets them straight, and he goes about to preach a long sermon. Hopefully my sermon won't be that long, but he preaches a long sermon. And what happens? From 120 people praying and Peter preaching, we see 3,000 people come to know the Lord and are baptized that day. That's pretty astounding. I, I, I've been in this church for a long time, and every so often I'll run into a person that says, oh, I really liked it in the days when we were at about 100 people, 150 people. I knew everybody. I understand where they're coming from. But given this, I don't think God is about little churches. He has 3,000 people in one day's time. Uh, what happens to those believers? Well, we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 41, 
Those people, 3,120 people, are now praying for God to, to work. We then see in chapter 4, uh, Peter and John are arrested after they are again preaching. The church has been praying for them there also, and we are told that more people were added to the fellowship. In spite of the religious leaders having a problem with what, what Peter and John were preaching, God brought the total up to 5,000 people. And that didn't even include women and children. So God does a lot with praying. We also see that probably the greatest evangelist is a result of prayer. And his name was Saul of Tarsus. He went about persecuting the church. He was confronted. He was headed to Damascus with warrants out for the Christians. He was going to bring them back in chains and make sure they were punished. Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus and he is struck down blind, uh, instantly knows that he's been out of step with the Lord. And there's another prayer warrior, Ananias, that we're told has been praying also. And in a vision, God reveals to Ananias, hey, there's a man over on Straight Street. You need to go and talk to him. Oh, who is he, Lord? Well, he's Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, he's an evil man. Why do you want me to go talk to him? I'm doing a work in his life. He is my chosen person to go to the Gentiles and the people of Israel. I want you to go over and lay hands on him. And uh, he's praying also for you. And the final example that I see in, uh, in prayer is at the church of Antioch. Paul and Barnabas are at Antioch. Antioch was a launch pad for all of Paul's travels, all of Paul's three missionary trips. He always came back to Antioch. Antioch, like Faith Church, is a sending church. We send people out into all different ministries. I'm proud of the church that way. We are doing our job. But they were praying in advance. They were praying, fasting, worshiping. And when it was revealed to them that they should send Paul and Barnabas out, they went back to praying and fasting some more before they laid hands on them and sent them out. The rest of the book talks about that history. So we need to understand why we pray because it reminds us that God is responsible for the harvest. He's responsible for those that are going to work. God gives us the privilege to be involved in evangelism. We need to take advantage of that. Paul can use any, I mean, excuse me, God can use anyone. He can use me, but he can use Paul. Paul lamented, he said, in 1 Corinthians 15.9, I am the least of the apostles. He was called an apostle because he had met Jesus, he was with Jesus, not like the other ones, but he did meet Jesus. And he said, I am the least of them. And why was he the least of them? Because unlike the other apostles, I persecuted the church. So he felt a great responsibility in what he was doing. What is our fear, our greatest fear in my mind, when we're witnessing the people, is they might laugh at us, they might reject us. Well, look at how Paul was treated. I guess when you see how Paul was treated when he attempted to evangelize people, I don't feel bad at all. In 2 Corinthians 11, 23-28, he lists his experiences, including being put in jail, was shipwrecked, was whipped more times than he could count. Actually, his shipwrecking, he was three times. He once was stoned. That would be a deal breaker for me. Trust me. I wouldn't be out there anymore if somebody stoned me. But he kept right on going. He traveled many miles 
through territories where robbers were notorious in attacking people. He went without food. He went without water. He didn't have enough warm clothes on some nights to keep him warm. He had many sleepless nights. My experience in witnessing and the rejection is nothing compared to what that man saw. Yet in spite of all those terrible things, he was probably the most determined worker of all. And we see why. I, I suspect that some of it was because of his previous actions. He probably felt like, well, I'm his now. I wasn't a good person. I need to really, I need to make up for that. It wasn't about works. It was about making up for lost time. Paul says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save a few. That's my verse also. Saving people was his priority in life. That's also my life. Evangelism has several components to it. Harvest is the final outcome. And, uh, and many of you have experienced that opportunity to harvest. It's, it's one of the greatest highs that you can ever have. I've experienced it on numerous occasions. But there are other aspects. Some of you may never, ever lead somebody across that line. That is okay because there's more that happens in evangelism. And Paul describes what those works look like. In 1 Corinthians 3, chapter 6, verse 6, I'm sorry. Paul, I, planted the seed in your hearts. Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. Planting, watering, harvesting. Begin with planting seeds. First, you need to be with people. You have to be in proximity of people. So where do you find the people? Just look around you. You have your family. That's the first place you need to start with. You have your children. You have your brothers and sisters. You have your parents, possibly. You have cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents. That's a big starting point right there. Look at your family. Where can you be witnessing there? The neighborhood. I just talked about Steve. Look at your neighborhood. God, God has placed you, not, not by accident, but you are there for a purpose, and that is to communicate the love of God to them. The people you work with. We all go to work every day, and we have people around us that are lost, have no interest in, in God things. That's a good place to start, too. And then... Uh, there are all kinds of other activities, especially when you are at that stage of life where you're chasing around with your kids for soccer, basketball, baseball, track, cross country. You're going to interact with these kids. You're going to interact with their, with their parents. Take advantage of that. Uh, my wife and I oftentimes do that. We try to develop friendships. Bring up that uh, chart. Yeah, interaction with people far from God. The horizontal axis represents the years of walking with Christ, 1 through 15. The vertical one is the number of people that you interact with that at some point in time are far away from God. You can see in that first year, and I don't know where they come up with those numbers, but, but the first year is the greatest time where you know people that are far away from God. I'm assuming, I'm hoping that as you go down uh, the years, 2, 3, 4, that as you are dealing with people that are far away from God, some of them have come to know the Lord as Savior. But I'm not sure that happens with everybody. Uh, if, your, um, if what happened to me happened to you, it's, you're weird. 
you're a holy roller. I don't want anything to do with you. So you start losing those friends. You're no longer any friend. You used to go out to the bars with us. You used to go to these football games with us. You did this, you did that. They don't want anything to do with you. So you need to be considerate of, as you get to year number eight, it shows that you have none. So that tells me that you need to become more intentional about the people that you're with. How do you do that? You get to know them and their stories. As friendships grow, eventually we will share life together and go b- below the surface. Uh, I'm dealing with a co-worker whose wife just had a stroke here recently, and they're going through a lot of difficulties in her rehab and the money issues that come up with it, and it's just been a great opportunity to, to witness to them. And the, the way I started off was, Keith, I want to pray for Leanne. And that just, he didn't reject that. He was very appreciative of that. In fact, when I brought that request to our prayer team on Sunday morning, I had a couple of the people send out a little note card and just say, hey, we've been praying for you. Leanne sent a wonderful, uh, wonderful thank you letter back to him, and it has really opened up our avenue of being able to, to talk to them about Christ. Be a resource provider. I'm going to visit that a little bit later. And the simplest thing you can do is invite them to church. When asked sometimes, I don't know what the percentage is, I heard that a while back, why, why don't you go to church? Well, nobody invited me. I guess I didn't know to go to church you had to be invited, but keep that in mind. Some people might be sitting out there because they haven't been invited. Remember to do that. Resource provider. The easiest resource, that, and by that I mean books. Put a Bible in their hands. If there's somebody that you've gotten to know and they're seeking, they want answers, well, here are the answers. Put a, put a Bible in their hands. In the pew, we have Bibles that if you need a Bible, you can take it. It's yours. You don't have to pay anything for You know somebody needs a Bible, take it, give it to them. It's free. Our church is more than willing to spend the money on something like that. Other books that I have used over the years, and some of you are familiar with them, uh, The Case for Christ, written by Lee Strobel, a newspaper person who was seeking to debunk the whole idea of Jesus Christ after two years of search, uh, came to the conclusion that there is a Jesus Christ that is his Lord and Savior, and it changed his life. Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren is a great book. How Good is Good Enough? This is a resource that our church office has for you. Uh, This is a really effective book for people that are in some of the traditions around here that are working towards salvation. Uh, Their works are not because of their salvation, but they're working. They're trying to be good enough. Well, how good is good enough? Pastor Andy Stanley really does well at, at, uh, at, at explaining that. It's a great resource to get into somebody's hands. My experience with that is, uh, I call it Bert's story. Bert is a guy I worked with over at Colorcraft years ago, and he and I were both pressman helpers. Pressman helper, their job is to keep ink in the wells and paper flowing through so boxes can be printed. So when you're on a million, million piece run, you have lots of time on your hands. And reading is something I did, reading is something that Bert did, and I recognized that. I had been witnessing to Bert. I witnessed to all the people there. I was the go-to Christian there. Whenever uh, something happened that was noted in the paper, like the Pope said this, or this leader said that, Paul, what did you think about that? So I was the go-to guy. So I was known as the Christian there. 
probably mocked a little bit, but they, they knew that I was a resource for them. So I had been reaching out to Bert. My wife and I actually invited he and his, his girlfriend at the time to go and see The Passion of Christ. There is another avenue, movies. There are some great movies out there. Did not affect Bert at all. Bert was the only one in the whole theater watching that movie, eating popcorn at the time. He was not moved at all by what was going on there. But later on, I gave him the book Purpose Driven Life. And that was a book that we were going through as a small group. I, it impacted my life a lot. I thought it would be great for Bert to read. Bert had it in his hands for about a half hour. He started reading it. And he came back to me and said, Paul, I, I just don't want to read this book. I said, well, why is that? Well, Rick Warren starts out in talking about God as a loving father. Bert said, I don't know what a loving father is. I don't believe there is such a thing. Well, why is that, Bert? So I got to know Bert's story. Bert's father committed suicide at, at the age of three. Didn't have that experience with his earthly father. His father became, or his grandfather became his father, who was not a nice man. So Bert grew up under a not-so-loving father figure. So he couldn't relate to that. He didn't want anything to do with that. So I had to go back to my resources uh, in my little library. And I came across the book. Bert was a sports fan. He knew, he knew who Joe Gibbs was. Joe Gibbs is a, was the Washington Redskins football head coach. He also runs Joe Gibbs Racing, which is a NASCAR thing. So if you're around Joe Gibbs, you read anything by Joe Gibbs, it's about the gospel. Everything that Joe does is about the gospel. So I gave that book to him, and the most interesting thing happened. Bert consumed that book for days. And finally, one night, he came back to me to hand me the book. He says, that was a great book, Paul. Thank you. I said, well, you're welcome. He said, I want to be part of that team. Well, I'd read the book. What do you mean you want to be part of the team? He says, I want to be on Jesus' team. The, e the easiest harvest that I ever experienced. Let him across the line. He was already across the line just based on Bill's book. So never hesitate to get something in a person's hands. Be prepared to tell people your story. You have a before God story and you have an after God story. You can lead a lot of people to Jesus just by telling them who you were or they may have experienced who you were and who you are now. And that might bring them to the Lord. Uh, try to keep your story limited to 45 seconds. Don't go into real great detail. Just tell them your before and after. Keep it short enough so that they will want to ask you more questions to, to clarify what you just said. Keep the story concise and clear. Don't be fuzzy. Don't use terminology that's I would call religious. Uh, they, they, aren't, they, have, they aren't in the church. They don't know what eternal security means. They, they don't know those things. So don't even use that. And especially do not act religiously superior. Uh, I, I know a number of people that will like to say, well, in their testament, I came from such and such a religion, and this is why I left it. You're going to put that person on the defensive. Don't talk about what's wrong with their religion. Talk to them in a loving way and explain to them what we believe. So how do you get started in doing this? Ideas that work in building relationships. Things that I have tried. We invite people to cookouts. Accept invitations to the neighborhood cookout. Maybe you're concerned, while well, they're going to serve alcohol. I'm going to be surrounded by profanity, bad stories, things like that. You can endure. 
you're there, you're, you're salt and pepper, you're seasoning, you're there to help level that off. And in turn, then you can bring them into a party where you might have a few Christian plants, for lack of a better term. Uh, so invite these people and co-workers to a Christmas party. Go out for dinner. Uh, have game day or Super Bowl parties. Enjoy hobbies together. I, I, I golf, we fish, horseback riding. Uh, my wife and I over the years have done hay rides. There was a guy that was just new to the, new to the belief, didn't really know exactly where it was. We got to see him become a vital part of the church and cross that line. All because